What happens when a guy from the city accidentally contacts a guy from the country? It's not what you think. They strike up a conversation and same difference is created. JD and Corey talk the whole gamut of life as they each see it through the prism of race. One is a six foot four black man and one is a five foot four white man. Tune in and find out which is which. Agree or disagree, they will make you think, strike emotional chords, and more. Stick around. You might just learn something. Welcome to Same Difference with your hosts, JD and Corey. We're sharing our stories and how our stories impacted our approach to life. We take our perspectives into having dialogue about real life topics. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome to Same Difference. I am one of your co-hosts, Corey May, and this is my tag team partner, the good doctor, Dr. J.D. Mass. Doctor, how are you? I am well. Great to be back with you, Corey. The pleasure Looking is to learn some more about you. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm pretty sure we're going to hear some more about you, too. And, and where are you right now? Where are you this week? I am in U City, St. Louis, Missouri. <laughs> I, I know you rep it, and I know you rep it well. We've talked about representation, and we've talked about who we are and how where we are is important to us. I want to get more into that in a minute or two, but I want to thank the fine folks at VPR Radio, the Queen Kiana, and DJ, DJ FMI yes. for giving us the opportunity and this fantastic platform to bring to you same difference. Exactly. So, Corey, I want to know some more about you in high school. Uh, we talked in briefly about that in the first episode. Um, we talked about it from a, a sort of a where you were positioned and how things um, worked in your uh, high school, but what were you like? What was Corey May like in high school in this setting? Thank you for that question. In one of the previous episodes, we talked about representation and how important representation is, that you get to see people who are like you doing things to which you can aspire. And while the University of Iowa was close by, literally in my backyard, there weren't a whole lot of Black role models in my high school. I think I had one Black substitute teacher or not substitute, but once black student teacher in my entire high school career. And wow. yeah, yeah. It, this isn't to bash anyone in particular, because remember, high school is one of those traumatic times for everybody. Nobody comes through high school unscathed. You get some dirt on your shoes you get your ego deflated. You get some strokes that are going to send you off 
kind of like a birthing process when you graduate off into the future. A lot of times I felt invisible. I, I'm wearing a mask in high school. And it's a mask of always smiling. Matter of fact, when I was in junior high, here's a story for you. I'm in eighth grade science and I'm smiling. I'm smiling. That's all. I love this class and I've got good grades. And I love this teacher. But he got weirded out by the fact that I was always smiling and he thought I was up to no good. So one day he calls my mom and we have a powwow in the, I'm sorry, we have a, a meeting in the principal's office. Now my mom is taking time off from work. She's a single mom because my dad is deceased. So my mom decides to get all Perry Mason on him and asks, is my son doing well in your class? Yeah, he's got an A minus B plus average in class. Is he disruptive? No, he's not. Does he have any homework that's outstanding? No, he does not. So what's the problem? Your son is always smiling and I always feel like he's up to no good. And my mom, who doesn't usually get angry, channeled the voice of God and said, if he's doing nothing wrong, then why am I here? And if he does something wrong, you have my phone number, call me. But you made me take time off from work because my son is smiling. And she let the situation hang in the air. And at that moment, he realized what this looked like. Wasn't disruptive, didn't have bad grades in the class, turned in my assignments, but I loved science. And at some point that started to kill my enthusiasm for science. But that's my choice as opposed to fully on that particular teacher. I felt it was easier to smile and laugh than let people know how much the, the microaggressions, we didn't call them microaggressions back in the 80s. Right. We just called it. Bullshit. Racism, rudeness. And, and that was one of the things when you are at a young age, you aren't gifted with all the wisdom and life experience to filter out what is racism. Some people may very well be just a jackass. Right. And their behavior, their behavior may not be racist. Their behavior may just be them being that jackass. And there may be no racial component to it. But you run through people's behaviors through a series of filters to figure out 
was that just clumsiness or was there a racial animus behind it? Right. And it's not something that you want to learn, but it's something that you end up going through because why am I being treated differently than my peers? So I smiled a lot. And a lot of people remembered me at the reunions because I was smiling. They didn't necessarily, Corey, you've got a beautiful smile. I think it's all right, but whatever. Well, you smile a lot on your picture, so you must think it's pretty all right. I can do some things. <laughs> but my best friend, the other black guy in our high school class, and I talked almost every night. And he and I shared, he listened to me. Now, my my good friend, Rich, is truly African-American. His parents were born in Africa. I believe he was born in Africa and has had citizenship here in the state. So he's uniquely African-American. And the education that he got in Africa was different than the education that we were getting here in the States. In some respects, he had an entirely different worldview than the worldview that I had. And to this day, Again, because he has a a much more global worldview, uh, having been taught in education systems around the world that I don't have. And also that we don't purposely, we don't teach about any other cultures, but go ahead. When we reconnected after a number of years, That was one of those conversations that he and I had. And it was about how awful some aspects of high school were. When I got to hang out with him, man, we'd trip and we'd talk. And that was my that was my my ride or die. My bestie. Matter of fact, he's in town for a couple of weeks, and I'm going to see him just within the next day or so. I think he just got into town today and we're going to spend some time together. And always my friendship with him was a sanctuary. I'm sure. So I'm up in front of people performing. I'm up in front of people speaking with these skills. And yet socially I was invisible. It's a difficult thing when you're 6'1 or 6'2 in high school and you're invisible. I think that is that is an important aspect of my personality that you will acknowledge me. And I do not tolerate not being acknowledged. I do not tolerate it. I do not tolerate it. I do not tolerate it. And there have been moments in my adult life when I've lost my cookies over the fact that I'm standing here 
I'm on this Zoom call. I am live in front of you and you are ignoring me. Yeah, I think that's, that's an important aspect to racism. There's bigotry, which we label racist quite uh, easily, but there's the subtleness of power dynamics that right. that include just being able to ignore someone's value and existence in a situation um, that is is a subtle and very powerful uh, form of racism or our characteristic of racism. I think I think you're hitting on something. At some point, we should probably define the difference between bigotry, prejudice, and racism. Because too often, those have all become synonymous and interchangeable, interchangeable. when they are not. Right. And... I know this may drift a little bit of far afield, but uh, I, I, I can guarantee that we can come back around to it. If the, there is a, a confusing paradigm in terms of our language that if racism is a very general term focusing on someone's belief that their race is superior to the other, then anyone can be racist. And then at the same time, which means that it can be weaponized against people of color. Oh, they're racist. They're clearly racist. Right. Whereas when it comes to people of color using the term racist, then that term is as narrow as it can possibly be. Meaning it's the most furthest, most violent, most virulent strains of what racist behavior is, such as uh, burning crosses and, and uh, racial violence like that. Well, I'm not racist because those are what racists are. So at one point, it's a very broad definition. And then at simultaneously, it's a very, very narrow definition as well. And I think as we continue to have these conversations, we need to elaborate on the definitions of those words, both, uh, all three rather, bigotry and bigot, prejudice, and also racism. Now, that's, that's just signposting for an upcoming podcast. So that's a teaser, everybody. All right. <laughs> Tune in soon because we're going to talk about that. So were there other things that you were aware of, either felt off and maybe didn't fully have the ability to contextualize and uh, or where you knew right away that where you experienced kind of this, I'm an, I'm a minority in a world of racism that can harm me. Well, 
it was again socially how people treated you when you came to their house mm-hmm. uh, tell. I, there were some folks i have a i have a classmate i have a couple of classmates who always saw me and their moms would always be like oh Corey, you are so skinny let me feed you and i love them right <laughs> because they would go out of their way. Oh, they'd grab me around the waist and try to, you know how how uh, grandmothers would do that pinch right. and see. No, uh-huh. They're like, oh, you are far too thin. And then they would feed me. Yeah. And again, and I that's love a them. Southern culture, country culture kind of thing. Oh, yeah. I, and I love them for that. And they yeah. were always, always graceful and kind and open. And then there were other times when it was not so hospitable, um, merely being tolerated. My presence was tolerated. Right. And you can feel the difference. You can feel the difference, right. You can feel the difference because they're treating the white friends like this, embracing them, and I'm at arm's length. I that was a moment or two or ten where I had to be mindful, like, oh, I get it. I get it. Note to self, this is not a safe environment for me. At the same time, there were folks again who opened their homes to me and they were kind. Kind again, Corey, you're looking thin eat up we want you here please come by right and that welcome makes a big difference my son Stephen, a very well spoken young man as far as articulation in comparison to me especially (laughs) Um, uh, and he spoke about one of the first times, like he had gone up, he, he had some experiences in, in being in mostly white schools. Um, and he had some good experiences with some of the parents of white children that he became friends with. Like you said, they, they took up, took a liking to him and, and it was purely human, um, humanity at its mm-hmm. finest, which shows that melanin doesn't create that level of humanity. And then in high school, he went over to one kid's house and um, and he said he felt like an object, right? He was watched. He They were just kind of looking at him, like trying to figure him out. And not only were they watching him to see maybe if he was gonna do anything, um, but just sort of this eerie, feeling that just was different than a welcoming feeling. And that was his kind of first time, right? That that he felt that he could really experience the feeling of that. And it happened around high school. So at that point, remember, we go through, everybody goes through puberty. And what I used to be a cute, non-threatening kid. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, I'm six foot plus, large black man. 
Well, at that time, I wasn't large, but I was just, I'm now this six foot tall black man. Awkward, social, socially learning, because we are never graceful, fully graceful and poised in high school. Mm -hmm. Try as we might, we can stick our feet in our mouths because our brains aren't fully developed. Right. (laughs) And when we go through those moments, sometimes you think, oh my gosh, this is going to be the end of my life because I said something stupid. And there are pay- there are parents out there who are very forgiving. They're just like, relax. And then there's other folks that you are on guard. Yes, yes, sir. No, sir. Mm-hmm. To this day, because my parents... <laughs> taught us this everyone's first name was mr or mrs and now i'm in my my mid 50s and these family friends are like oh you may call me by my first name i'm like your first name is mr and her first name is mrs i am not ready to call you by your first name i do not feel comfortable with that i can call my friends who are my peers by their first name Right. But yikes. I'm not ready to do that. Oh, you couldn't meet my dad. He would not allow you to call him mister. I mean, from when we were in the second grade and all, and he was, you know, assistant, so to speak, coach of all the little league things, soccer, baseball, that I would do, call me Larry. Do not call me, like, to the point where one day I had to ask him, should I call you dad or Larry? He was like, you can call me Larry. I'm Larry. I was like, what do you mean? But I call them both now. Um, I couldn't let him get away with just being Larry. But certainly I do call him that from time to time. But, yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting thing that you say that. Sorry, I don't mean to digress from your story. But you get it. There was a certain level of respect that was conferred upon us to dispense to the adults. Mm -hmm. And we were never supposed to get so familiar that you could call somebody by their first name. Right. Like, (laughs) I, I know I could call them, you know, either Miss uh, Mac, Nellie's mom, or or but or ma or you know was my best friend's grandmother i could call her ma i'd call her grandma miss boyd i but yeah you know i'm not gonna call her by her first name none of them i could call them by their mr mr or address their position mama hey mama Yeah. yeah and there are times when i slipped up and i said Uh, I called someone mama that I thought and the look of horror on their face (laughs) was heartbreaking to me because here I had considered this person to be a mother figure and they looked absolutely horrified that I would call them or articulate that as a title for them. Right. So let's go back to high school. I was 
good enough to take out for the big events like homecoming and prom. But I wasn't dating in between those times. We talked about that briefly. And again, invisibility. Invisibility. There was the constant fear that somehow I'm going to tarnish somebody's reputation. So how did you respond in sort of all of this? Like, what was your kind of behavior like given this? I became the funny guy because humor allows us to deflect. Mm -hmm. I can't be rejected if you accept me in some way, shape, or form by something that I do. If I make you laugh. Right. That's I'm less threatening, too. Far less threatening. And at some point or another, I figured it out. You laugh at dunces. You laugh with comedians. Mm -hmm. And at some point or another, there was always this desire to be on some level, a comedian. Okay. And that has to open it up to who are, who were the types of comedians that you aspired? Well, in high school, it was pretty much Eddie Murphy because okay. uh, yeah. Raw and Delirious came out and he was on fire. I oh, still fire. have his cassette. Fire. Oh, he, he was amazing. But before that, there was Bill Cosby. I loved Bill Cosby. And, and at the same time, you remember that some of my classmates called me Bill. Uh -uh. But they didn't call me Richard. Or, right. because, or, or Dick for Richard Pryor. <laughs> because Richard Pryor would have eaten them alive mm -hmm. in their ignorance and i wasn't really allowed to listen to richard pryor i could check out bill cosby albums from the library i wasn't quite ready to get the richard pryor albums because right. that would have that would have triggered some things had i brought those those records home and then played them while my mom was around all that profanity my mom would have lost her cookies well, I don't even know if you were old enough to be able to check those out at the library. Well, you know, you know, a little, a, a little eyebrow pencil right here, <laughs> a little, little forced depth in my voice. You're, you're gonna hear me doing some stuff like sensitivity, <laughs> <laughs> trying to deepen my voice for that moment. It wasn't until I got older that I was able to see Richard Pryor like live on the Sunset Strip on a Friday night at a friend's house on HBO or Cinemax. And I saw the tremendous power that this man had in his ability to take what his life experiences were and translate it into something funny that was sacred, 
profane and shocking all at the same time. Sacred because it's his life experience and he couldn't be who he was without that experience. Profane, the manner by which he expressed it. Right. And then, so utterly human because he was so vulnerable in these moments. He talks, Richard Pryor talks about all of his flaws. Right. All of his flaws. Now, as I got older, I was exposed to more. Robin Harris, Robin Williams, um, Paul Mooney, Tommy Davidson. Marsha Warfield, Red Fox, George Carlin. And George right. Carlin was as dangerous and seditious as anyone out there because of the power of his mind. I, he was like another parent to me. He, he helped raise me for sure. And when you start to think about the idea, the people laugh at clowns. Right. But people laugh with comedians. When you start to see what a comedian can do with life experiences, great writing, and deep thought, so comedy, coming up with the the great one-liner, being one step ahead, having an a combustible type of intelligence made me think about comedy. And maybe being up on stage might've been one of those secret dreams, but being able to craft that wry turn of phrase to create that sharp one-liner being able to quote <laughs> an Eddie Murphy bit, it was everything. It was very much everything. And it was a shield for me. It was an absolutely positive uh, experience. And it was my shield. So I laughed. And I made other people laugh because if I had started to talk about how lonely and empty I was, I would have cried all the time. Were you consciously lonely and and empty and putting that shield up at that time? Or was it just instinctive and until you really were able to reflect on that? Um, So let's look at this from this perspective. Uh, Humor is often a trauma response. Right. And so when I was 11 years old, it's the beginning of my sixth grade year, my, I had a good friend die in a farm accident when you were around here back in the late 70s, early 80s, you could, if you were a kid on your own farm, you could drive. Uh-uh. so a classmate dies and he and I were pretty close we'd been together uh, as classmates since second grade he was a nice kid his family was wonderful to me they were kind people humanitarians just loving people 
And they did not see color. And when I say that, I don't mean that in the in the sense of oh uh, soft cushy liberalism. I mean that in they treated me like I was one of their children. They're kind people. Almost 45 years ago to the day, uh, my dad died that same year. And then further into our sixth grade year, my sixth grade teacher committed suicide. And I was a mess. I was a mess. And just, I was numb. Yeah. Comedy made me feel things. And comedy gave me the idea that I was visible. But it was also a shield that I had. And I, it doesn't start really manifesting itself until I get older, uh, junior high, like my freshman year and my sophomore year. That's when the comedy started to, or, or the funny aspect of me started to come out by the time i graduate from high school i'm a little bit bitter but i hide it and it puts me in a place where i want to leave iowa city and so i do now, let's talk about you, J.D. Tell me about you and your high school experience. Where were you feeling accepted and excluded? Wow. So high school was the best four years of my life. Um, I am envious of you. Yes. I... My literally my childhood, I, I it's hard for me to cry about anything I go through as an adult, struggle wise, because of my childhood. Whereas some people have trouble and have been through a trauma in their childhood, like you know losing the three people you spoke about may may have done some been a trauma for you. My childhood kind of wasn't. And what high school was for me was really a learning about my privilege in, in the world. And I say that inside of high school, kids talk stuff to me about coming from so much and not having to struggle. Right, like that was the big, you're spoiled brat, you're this, that, and the other, you got all of this. They saw how my, you know, the results of my parents treating my friends a certain way, especially my best friend, um, you know, there was, in any high school, there would be a level of bullying or attempt to bully in in middle school and high school. And because of my, early childhood meeting Shondo and Mike and us playing 
uh, kill a man, we called it, which was you catch the ball, everybody else tries to tackle you while you get from one end to the other, somebody else catches it, everybody tries. So even just the two of us playing and them being bigger than me and we playing on the front yard, um, that developed this lack of fear because I was much smaller than everybody, right? I'm five foot three and a half now and I claim my half so I can round it up to five four when I have to only claim a whole inch. Um, <laughs> ah, but never round down, always round up. <laughs> always round up. I need that half. Um, so, but you know, Shondo's six foot three. Topher, who I've known since since elementary school was one of the first matter of fact since i was five you know him and mike been best friends he's six foot three he my mom once described him like you were just saying as you know somewhat she was talking to another person as you would be a you would think you would be afraid of him he's comes off you know he's a big black guy you would think and she wasn't she was just describing it all my friends knew the love that she had for them. She was, and he was telling me like, you know, your mom just simply put it to her friends. Like I have to deal with that all the time. I, your, the perception from society teaching us is big black guy, scary, right? And so um, I grew up with that. So I wasn't really afraid of anybody physically. I told uh, Chevella the first time I went on a date with her, like, look, I might be small. I'm not scared of any man. I don't care how big he is. Maybe Tyson. Tyson might have been the one. That <laughs> I was, he was too fast. But I'm really not scared. I, I'll take an ass whooping if I got to, but I'm not scared of what they can do. If we see a possum or a fucking raccoon, you are on your own. I am frightened. <laughs> right? But going back to this, <laughs> I'm not, I, I, I fought back quickly to bullies. And I had Shondo, who was always going to come fight for me, or Mike, who was going to come fight for me, or Topher, who, so I knew they were protecting me even when I didn't know they were protecting me. Because people would be like, you know, let me get your cornbread almost <laughs> uh, you go eat that, your cornbread right it wouldn't be cornbread but they would be like let me get that from you what you gonna do tell Shondo what you gonna do tell such and such so I was sort of protected in that way um but I we talked about my privilege right my my parents discussion on money and we, we had a house in the lake of the Ozarks that we would drive three mile, three hours to to and from and bring my friends and they'd get to stay in this house. And it had four hotel rooms in it. One of them was our private unit and the others could be rented out in this resort. And so I had it very differently than my friends. And I got to learn about my privilege in high school. Out in the society, I got to learn about being white and oh wait i i'm not questioned like they are i i go ahead i got a question for you so when you took your 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 buddies your ride or dies 
with you to Lake of the Ozarks? How did they feel? And did they share in their feelings in conversation with you? They saw racist stuff and would would be able to point it out faster than me. Um, but they often were like just grateful to be coming along. Um, we, I don't know, man, we were just kids being kids. And, and I think my parents protected us a lot in that sense. Um, and so we had that place in the Lake of the Ozarks up until I was in high school. Um, but it was sort of high school where I really got to know that through conversation with other peers that we were um, the amount of difference. And my parents came from more wealth than they actually had themselves. Um, but we definitely were strong middle class right um and and we got my dad took us shopping and he took us shopping for clothes me and shondo me shondo and jamel me right he he paid for tennis lessons and he paid for our tennis lessons right right um so there was also that level of jealousy. There were people, there would be kids coming up to me in high school that were uh, like, you know, buy me this. I'm buying you that. Well, you would buy it for Shondo, you'd buy it for Nelly, you'd buy it for Fatty, you'd buy it for such and such. They're my friends. What the hell makes you think I'm supposed to just buy you something? They didn't come up to me like that and that's how we became friends. They came over to the house. We hung out. We started to relate. We became friends. So, you know, you would get that level of pushback as well from time to time. Um, but I also learned in society, like I could just, I was unsuspecting. I fit right in, in, in shopping centers and right, like my friends would get watched. I could get away with anything if they were the uh, if they were the um, distraction. Right, right, right. That. When did you notice that for the first time that you were that your buddies, your guys, were always under suspicion and you were not? When did that really sink in? So as it was sinking in was when we could when we could drive and go to the mall ourselves. So the last three years of high school, really, especially those last two. We could see we were in the mall a lot. That was a place to hang out at, right? The Galleria, which what year was this, if you don't mind me asking? Early 90s, 90. Three is when I graduated, so this was 91, 92, okay. heavily, 90, 91, 92. Um, and, you know, they 
be watched when we went into stores. When we went into the small stores, they'd be watched. When we went into the bigger stores, you could see them being followed. If we split up, I was not. They were. I could watch the people watching them. Um, but it really became interesting. I remember the first time someone tried to take back a pair of shoes to what famous bar, which was a May department store. Um, and, uh, and he couldn't, and he was a dark skinned, tall, heavy guy. We called him PS and he couldn't take, he was denied the ability to take them back. And I just happened to be at the mall at that time. And we happened to run into each other in the parking lot. And he wore, I wore a size nine. He wore, I want to say a size 13, but something much bigger than mine. And I grabbed that bag from him in the parking lot, went right back to the person that just denied him. And this was, couldn't have been 20 minutes difference and asked him to return those shoes. Don't need it, receipt. I mean, don't need to try them on. I know they fit. This is the problem. Need a new pair. And they came out and then I came out with the shoes, handed it to him. And he said, which guy did you go to? And we described it. Same exact person. In U City, we were known for dressing real nice. And it you know, we were the county kids, so they thought about that. But really, <laughs> really, well, we were, they were, they took stuff, they would wear them and take it back. I didn't have to as much, but I would do some sometimes just to stay because my parents were frugal with uh, how they spent money on our clothes. So that became sort of a trending thing at times. And we saw what we, what we would call flaws in the system and take advantage of those flaws in the system, which white folks do all the time in banking. And so, you know, this was nothing new. This was American culture to us. Mm -hmm. I could get away with taking back anything. And especially if they were in the mall with me because all eyes would be on them and I am just this unsuspecting short little white kid that just was so nice and I could get away with taking back anything. The return policy was beautiful for me. We ran an entire mall hustle. I wrote about that in the book. We ran a, mo a mall hustle during Christmas season, like you wouldn't believe. Matter of fact, Nelly spoke on it on uh, his um, When I Am 17 was a name of a show VH1 did for a while, yep. um, talking about when he was 17 years old and he talked about this mall hustle. I'm going to look forward to this. <clears throat> what the, the, what JD is 
talking about in terms of his book is his book race for what a white man's journey and guide to healing racism from within and you can get it on amazon i have Any a copy of- yeah I-, I have a copy of it and i'm looking forward to reading it and digging out more questions it's important for us to continue to have these dialogues and yeah I want to know more about how you how you lived. So you go to the mall, you see your partners being followed, and you also know that the system is stacked in your behalf. Did you have conversations with your parents about this? seeing this inequality and then also when would you having those conversations with your with your good friends so right after high school i smoked my first joint and I, we were about to start this mall hustle. And, um, or no, I wasn't even smoking at the time. They were smoking the joint and I didn't want to smell like weed. And Shondo snapped at me. Man, you white. Shut up. And I was like, Damn, but I still don't want to draw attention. And I went in there smelling like Christmas trees. And it was Christmas season. Maybe they, you know, looked at me and saw it as a, I, you know, playing in the pine trees. But it didn't matter. And he was real direct with that kind of stuff. And sometimes I didn't want to hear it or I just I would want to deny it this difference and it was just plain as day because he would just point it out like you can get away with this and i would go find out it was almost a curiosity how much i could get away with right like i wasn't trying to be um catch me if you can level but i was against corporatocracy i wasn't never i would never even consider stealing from a human or a mom and pop store, but taking things back and changing tags and getting discounts and doing whatever to corporate America, fuck them. So that was one of the the main reasons, like they would always kind of have to point out my, what I could get away with and what I couldn't. Did you have that conversation with your parents or did your parents notice how much different merchandise kept flowing through? No, they didn't know. They, matter of fact, they're surprised as hell and somewhat disappointed in their son um, after reading the book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we would talk about the, you know, we would talk about systemic racism. We would talk about my ability to get away with things. I mean, you know, I could talk to teachers differently. I could talk to principals differently. You know, my dad was involved in trying to get this principal hired. 
even though I told him don't choose that one, uh, but I could get away with it. So I'll tie in uh, name dropping at this point. Miss Bill was our in-school suspension uh, person. And she was the girls volleyball and, and one level of basketball coach. Um, you'll probably recognize her last name, Miss Bill. And um, I was a senior in high school and she was like, I haven't seen you in, in school suspension, seen all of your friends. You'll be in here next week. And I was like, what kind of statement is that? Like, I don't do anything wrong to get into in-school suspension. I come to school. I like to participate in class. I'm not going to do that. And at the basketball game that Friday night where Shondo and most of my friends were playing, one of my closest friends at the time who was in the crew, he got into a fight with a kid and they got, and that kid's friends were all in the crowd. So most of our friends were down playing basketball or, or whatnot. So they weren't around us. So he got jumped by about eight kids. Ooh. Hall monitor breaks it up and tries to not get any of us in trouble. So he lets us go. But what he didn't do is help walk us out. So they're waiting for us halfway through the hall so Fatty jumps in like, okay, well, if it's going to go down, I'm going to grab one of them and I'm going to beat the crap out of them while the rest of them try and beat me. So I, being the racist that I am, hit the only white kid <laughs> in their crew. <laughs> <laughs> and I end up on the ground. Another friend of mine kind of comes, pushes them off, and then the police grab us all and we get in trouble. So we get taken down to the police station. We spend in the night until my parents come. Uh, my dad is pissed. He actually grabs the police because he's pissed that we got jumped and he's trying to tell them. And they're like, hey, I've been looking for you. And they grab me and lock me up. He didn't know he was doing that to us. So the next Monday, I'm supposed to get suspended 10 days like Fatty got suspended 10 days for fighting on the school. And some of them got suspended for 10 days. I'm in the in the room with the principal telling them that's bullshit. Literally saying that. My dad being there, I got away with it. Don't use that language, but that's not a lie. I'm like, my friend was getting jumped. What am I supposed to do? Not do it. The dude could have walked us out. The hall monitor could have walked us out. Like we could have been protected and none of this would have happened. So I get five days of in-school suspension. Thanks, Miss Bill, for calling that out. <laughs> so. Wow. Wow. I just want you to, to uh, I want to clarify this for everybody. This is something that I do on my own. We don't name drop, we lift names up because okay. when we name drop, it makes us seem important. But when we lift other people's names up, we're showing a sense of gratitude. Yeah. There was a lesson that was shown to you. And I want 
to clarify this one thing <clears throat> was Miss Beale uh, a little smug about the fact that she'd called it? <laughs> oh, so she's probably a little smug right now about the fact that my first day in there, um, she, uh, Miss. Uh, what was her name? The assistant principal came down. Oh my goodness, I'm blanking on her name, but she loved me. And she came down and said, Jesse, what you doing in here? I said, I got in trouble. I'm in here for five days. You'll be collecting attendance the whole week. Sorry, Miss Bill. <laughs> I turned around like, hey, I gotta go. <laughs> and so I get the best job in the entire school for every single period I get to hang out in the hallway and collect the attendance the whole time <laughs> and go into Miss Ward. That was her name, Miss Ward's office and hang out with her for the whole time. So yes, my high school experience was was magical. And yes, Miss Beale is Bradley's mother. So we'll lift him, him and her up. I appreciate that. It's coming to the end of our, our time together. Jesse, what do you got for a closing thought or closing thoughts? Do you have any questions that you want to leave in our audience's mind for the following week? So I want to take this quick moment then to talk about racism and we talked about bigotry and prejudice. And if you haven't heard Dr. Claude Anderson teach you what the difference between those two are, I really hope you take the time to go research Dr. Claude Anderson and find out how he breaks down what racism is. And it's a system. It's a system to control resources. Bigotry and prejudice play a part in that, but it is a system. It is not those individual acts. Those are individual acts. Those are individuals' feelings. Racism incorporates those as a whole thing into how a system is designed to make a people with less melanin feel superior. But truly go look up Dr. Claude Anderson because the man knows his stuff and can really break down what is needed to, to create the real balance of power in, in healing and repair. That would be how I would close this. This isn't going to be the last time that we talk about prejudice, bigotry, and racism, but that's a parting thought. I wanna give a shout out again to VPR Radio, and that would be Queen Kiana and DJ FMI for giving us this wonderful platform with which to discuss these life experiences. I got to thank my tag team partner, Dr. J.D. Mass. Thank you, Corey. It's a pleasure really getting to know you and really hearing from you what it's like to be a minority in the system where the power structure is the majority, right? Like 
I'm, I'm the minority in mine from a power structure being on my side. So the experience is even different. Um, but it's really, it's really uh, educational to me and I hope um, becomes really educational for the, for those of us, and I mean us low melanated folks that have not really understood what it's like to be a black man in a white man's society. And so I just appreciate this opportunity that VPR has presented to us for us and that we get to share with the audience and each other. Thank you, good sir. Until next time, this is Same Difference. Thank you for tuning in to another inspiring episode of Same Difference. We hope this journey through unique connections and diverse perspectives has left you with fresh insights and a broader understanding of the world we share. We're humbled by your support and enthusiasm for the incredible stories and discussions we've shared. And remember, our mission is to foster critical thinking, embrace new perspectives, and spark conversations that bring us closer to an equitable world. So, if you've enjoyed our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us. Your feedback means the world to us, and it helps us reach even more listeners. And if you have a story to share or a topic you'd like us to explore, don't hesitate to get in touch. We're always looking for new voices and fresh perspectives to feature on Same Difference. Until next time, remember that our shared humanity is our most powerful asset. And by working together, we can bring about positive change. Stay curious, stay compassionate, and keep making a difference. Thank you for being a part of Same Difference. Take care, everyone. See you in the next episode.